My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And on today's episode, I'll be taking a look at the film Cutter's Way. And before I begin, I just want to kind of um, let you know a few things. Number one, on the blog, if you like the 24 Frames Cast, you'll notice there's a page up there called Exclusives, on which you can find even more episodes. At the moment, I am doing a James Bond retrospective. Um, I'm not kind of saying that every week there's going to be an episode up there, but and they will be slightly different in format and. Um, I'm hoping really at the moment we're kind of averaging something up there about once every two weeks so do check it out if you want more that is where you'll find it. Uh, number two is that um, I'm well aware at the moment there is a slight dip in audio quality on the podcast and that is going to be remedied very soon with the arrival of an Apple Mac and some new microphone equipment so the recording quality should be increasing pretty um, greatly in the next few weeks once all that equipment has arrived. In relation to this episode, um, you may notice that the audio levels are slightly different. Um, there was a slight hitch when I was recording, and I've had to kind of record it in a couple of sessions on different machines, and the result was a slight um, differentiation in the overall quality. So I do apologise, but like I said, it is going to be remedied in the near future. I'm also well aware that the fact that many people probably might not have seen Cutter's Way. Um, I will say now that it is available on Amazon in the UK for about £3.97. I believe it's on a similar price over in the US and on Netflix over there. I think it's on Watch Instantly. So I would recommend um, checking it out before you actually listen to the show. I haven't really spoiled it. Um, I've tried to kind of make this this kind of uh, episode quite general in my kind of um, appraisal of the film. But to really appreciate it, I would certainly recommend um, watching it before you actually listen to this. But even if you do decide to kind of listen to this without watching it first, I don't think you're going to be kind of too spoiler heavy when you go into it. And mark my words, it is well worth checking out. So I'm going to get on with it straight away. And this is a close-up episode on Ivan Parsons' Cutter's Way. Hope you enjoy it. Give this clown enough to cover any damage. You'll get it back in a couple hours. Come on. Introducing Alex Cutter. You're kind of sexy. Do you have an appointment? Hey, Alex, how do I look? Hey, you look like a fat man on a horse, Georgie. Huh? Black's rich. Cutter's wife, Mo. The um, Richard Bone fan club is now complete. This, for instance, is a tomato. Food, huh? Yeah, I remember food. People used to have to eat it during the prohibition, didn't they? Occasionally for days on end. Cutter's best friend. My charger's got a bad battery, but will I do? <laughs> oh, no, you're too old. <laughs> Richard Bone. Buy some vitamin E. Well... It's been better for me, too. He's drunk. I have to give that another try. What makes you say that? Their life together wasn't exactly ordinary, but they never bargained for Cutter's fantasy. Is there Richard Bone here? Crushed trachea, fractured skull, 17 years old. That's him. This young friend of yours is pursuing some fantasy of his own, and, and 
includes me. Whatever we do falls under the heading of justice. Dishonorable and gutless. So what are you going to do? It's not a question of what I'm going to do. It's a question of what you're going to do with the time you've got left. I'd say that you're the one that ought to be very, very careful, not us. You're the witness, remember? You've got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. John Hurd, Jeff Bridges, and Lisa Eichhorn in Cutter's Way, a film by Ivan Passer from UA Classics. There is no better feeling when I receive emails from listeners telling me that they have, after listening to the show, gone out and either bought or watched a film that I have talked about that they have never seen before. I think I've converted a few people over to the film Colossus the Forbin Project. I've received a few emails from people who have gone and checked out the films of Peter Watkin and have come back and told me how much they've enjoyed watching them. And it really is, I think, the kind of payment that doing the podcast gives me and I enjoy it so much when people do email me and contact me to kind of swap stories about how these films have kind of really kind of changed the way they've looked at cinema or they've just enjoyed them outright it's such a great feeling now also I have received emails from people who have actually been quite annoyed that I tend to talk about films that they haven't heard of I had one particularly vicious email from someone who really kind of accused me of being elitist, being a film snob, and that they were never going to listen to my show again because I didn't talk about anything that was contemporary. I've actually contested I do talk about contemporary films, um, certainly kind of of gods and men, and I'm going to make a conscious effort in um, my One Man and His Films episodes to kind of talk about contemporary films that might have slipped under your radar. But what I really kind of garnered from the email was the fact that they were annoyed with me for not reviewing the films of the week and as I said to them in my reply there are other podcasts which do that a lot better um, and I just pointed them basically in the direction of slash film and film spotting and of course I do like mainstream contemporary films as much as the next person but for me there is nothing more rewarding than mining for hidden greats and indeed giving these films some kind of a platform is for me anyway part of the enjoyment of doing this podcast Finding hidden classics often entails a number of repeat viewings. You know what you are watching is great, but you need additional views to truly appreciate the genius. Some, however, are a case of love at first sight, forcing you to ask the question why you never found this film in the first place. Cutter's Way is one such film. I had first heard about the film about 10 years ago when my university lecturer waxed lyrical about its multifaceted qualities. At the time it was one of those films that was yet to make the transfer to DVD. Recently, Cutter's Way has enjoyed a kind of critical rediscovery and despite being available on DVD for some time, I've simply failed to get around to watching it. Come the end credits, I sat transfixed by what I had seen. Could it really have been one of my favourite films of all time? I was initially annoyed, why hadn't I bothered to see it until now, but equally I was excited for watching it again the next day. So what is the film actually like? Well, imagine Jules at Jim, The Deer Hunter and Chinatown. Now, this odd combination of films really should be a testament to how unique Cutter's Way is and not how derivative it is. Made in 1981, it has suffered being in the wilderness perhaps because it was not part of the hype and adulation of the new Hollywood explosion, although it is certainly most definitely a product of that time. Cutter's Way was directed by Czech filmmaker Ivan Parser, himself part of the Czech new wave of filmmakers including Milo Forman, 
and had fled to the US after the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Amongst his writing credits included films such as Loves of a Blonde, The Fireman's Ball, and prior to Cutter's Way, directed Silver Bear starring Michael Caine and Civil Shepherd. The film had a rather strange production history that may explain its years in the wilderness. Based on the novel Cutter and Bone by Thornton Newberg, it was considered to be a good novel but with limited film potential. The project was passed amongst various studios and individuals, with none having a great deal of actual interest in making it. At one stage Dustin Hoffman was due to play the role of Cutter, and Robert Mulligan on board to direct before the project eventually ended up at United Artists. The studio was yet to implode in the wake of the Heaven's Gate fiasco, and Cutter's Way, or Cutter and Bone as it was called at the time, was greenlit with a budget of $3 million with Jeff Bridges in the role of Bone, and Alex Hurd as the titular Alex Cutter, and the frankly incredible Lisa Eichhorn as Cutter's long-suffering wife Mo. It came and went with little fanfare and Cutter's Way disappeared as the 80s truly kicked in. But great films have an uncanny way of fighting back into the wider consciousness, and Cutter's Way has been born again not only as a great film, but perhaps one of the finest pieces of American cinema to have ever been produced. So what then is it actually all about? Set in Santa Barbara, Rich's Bone is a 30-something drifter who spends his day sleeping with the rich wives of the town's upper class for money and for fun, and hobnobbing on the fringe of society playing tennis and polo. He lives on a boat at the marina and is the middle-aged man stuck in the perpetual cycle of youthful abandon. One night, after leaving a country club and the bed of a rich woman, he breaks down in an alleyway in the pouring rain in his clapped-out car. Behind him, another car pulls up. A man gets out and puts a large object in a bin and almost runs bone over as it speeds off. Not bothering to check what is in the bin and leaving his car there, Bone runs over to a nearby bar to see friend Alex Cutter. Cutter is a crippled Vietnam vet resembling a junkman pirate with eye patch, missing arm and limp. Sodden with alcohol, Cutter is loud, rude, obnoxious, funny, annoying, endearing and above all, utterly compelling. Retrieving his drunken friend from a near kicking, we meet Mo, Cutter's alcoholic wife who indulges Cutter's behaviour out of a mixture of duty and sad resignation. She openly loves Bone more than just a friend who pays her compliments and attention that Cutter is incapable of doing in his near constant drunken state. The next day, the object in the bin is found to be the body of a young girl, and Bone is made the chief suspect. Questioned and released by the police, Bone, Cutter and Mo attend a parade through the town, and as Mo sits listening to the pair talk about which female members of the parade they would like to sleep with, Bone suddenly recognises a man on a horse riding through the parade as the same one he may have seen in the alleyway. Only it's not just any ordinary man. It is J.J. Cord, the most wealthy and powerful man in the entire town. Cord's influence extends to every facet of town life. To cross him means ruin, made all the more complicated as Alex's kind of brother and best friend to the group is George, an orphan taken in by Cutter's mother after the death of his parents. And George runs the profitable marina where Bone works, which was gifted to him by Cord. Knowing the police will likely forget the case once it has been proved Bone was not the murderer, Cutter becomes obsessed with proving Cord is the culprit. The murder girl's sister, Valerie, played by Anne's Dunesbury, enters the fray and is soon swept along with Alex's seemingly outlandish conspiracy that Cord has killed because the girl spawned his advances and dumped the body knowing his money and power would hide the crime. Bone is unsure if it even was Cord that he saw and is unwilling to commit to Cutter's investigation, even tried to sabotage it to maintain the status quo in the town, made all the more complicated by Mo's growing frustrations with Alex's erratic and wild ways. As Alex's conspiracy grows even bigger, he may just be mad looking for someone to blame for his life. Or the killer really is cause, and the root of all evil in the town. I first watched Cutter's Way four weeks ago, and that time I've gone back to it five times. Each time I'm left with a sense of overriding joy, not in relation perhaps to its character story arcs, some are ultimately tragic, 
but in relation to the fact that this film actually exists in the first place. I've spoken many times before on both the blog and the podcast of the sense that modern films alienate me to a degree. Yes, you can find intelligence in more if you look hard enough, but when I want to just relax and be entertained, the quality of material is often insultingly bad. On a recent episode of The Hollywood Saloon, various clips were played in which filmmakers like James Cameron and Steven Spielberg heap praise on Michael Bay and his work in Transformers. It me on the basis that if genuine, it shows the mediocrity and idiocy are now so firmly entrenched in Hollywood that even some of its film's greatest practitioners have no concept to what constitutes decent cinema in terms of story style, acting and directing, and we have to truly wonder if we are on the brink of the death of cinema. If I were somehow elected president of the United States, my first action would be to lock Spielberg and Cameron in a room and force them to watch Cutter's Way until their critical faculties have been realigned to the point where they're once again able to objectively judge what exactly a good film is. But why do I even hold this film in such high regard? Although of course not exactly popcorn entertainment, Cutter's Way is a gripping film as you will ever see, which leads me to take on the film's genre and quote how brilliantly Ivan Parser both plays with and totally redefines conventional perceptions all through the subtext of Cutter's Vietnam experience. The Nam Vet by the 80s had become a complete cliche, with unhinged mental protagonists refighting the war on a daily basis. Stand up Martin Riggs from Lethal Weapon. However, there was a time, I suppose, when the Nam Vet was something far more complicated and indeed interesting. For Alex Cutter, the war has left him physically and mentally scarred, and the genius of the film is to insert this alienation into the noir setting. Typically, the noir hero is nihilistic, alienated, and often recruited into causes or situations that seem at odds with their stringent individuality. Cutter is a classic protagonist in this sense, but being able to incorporate the character's rage of what has happened to him, the central murders mystery takes on a far greater significance than the crime at hand. Vietnam was, like many wars before and since, an insight into the deep class divides that separate society, with the rich either foregoing the horror or indeed running it and the working class doing the actual fighting. In a post-conflict world, the discrepancy is often the source of a great deal of ill-feeling and indeed sociological tension. You need only listen to Bruce Springsteen's incredible Born in the USA, which despite its apparent flag-waving patriotism, is in fact a searing critique of war vets' life in America. And on another note, please go to YouTube and type in Glenn Beck, Bruce Springsteen, in which Glenn finally, after all these years, realises that the lyrics might be slightly subversive. Well done Glenn, it only took you, what, 20 something years to get there? Cutter's Vietnam experience has left him with a hole that he's replaced with alcohol and anger directed towards the establishment. The film could have easily just been another Vietnam veteran exploration, but Parser decides to do something far more by including the murder mystery, as giving him the chance to address the perceived wrong, as if Cord is somehow the very embodiment and archetype of the cold, ignorant elite allowed so many to die and be maimed. Parser, however, strips Cutter of the sophistication of the noir anti-hero, yet through the drunken mind keeps the uncanny detective abilities that allow them to see deeper into the world. Only Cutter to us, as he is to his friends, may simply be unhinged and addled by the emotional baggage he carries around with him. The mystery of the film therefore becomes twofold. Firstly, who murdered the girl, which is for Cutter and Co to find out, and secondly, is Cutter mad, which is for us, for us to decide with the conclusion to both divulged at the end of the film. For every line of sense Cutter speaks, he also spouts a load of complete nonsense, therefore making it almost impossible to truly gauge objectively. Indeed, the whole film almost feels slightly ridiculous. Surely the real story being told is Cutter's redemptive art as a born-again member of society and newfound commitment to Mo, 
along with Bones deciding to leave his nomadic life behind and settle down perhaps even with Valerie which is actually hinted at during the film. Only every time we think that the murder is going to fade away in place of the seemingly more pressing matters of these people getting their lives together, it comes back, even in Cutter's mind expanded in scale and the levels of deceit behind it to include George and the possibility that Cord killed his parents and has funded him to keep him in check all his life. His investigation is hardly subtle either. He openly talks about his theories in front of Cord's wife. He makes no attempt to blend in or go undercover and certainly doesn't curb his drinking order to keep a clear mind. It is his friendship with Bone that also seeds further doubt that he may be having a kind of breakdown. The town has accepted status quo that Bone is only happy to divide in and out of. People aren't loud, they simply go about their business with a casual indifference to the world around them. Bone alone, not part of the establishment, is only happy to profit from its varied fruits, from the beds of its sexually starved women to the waters of its affluent men. He drifts through the social circles neither seemingly impressed or by repulsed by what he does. Cutter therefore seems all the more deranged, and whilst watching it I was reminded a great deal of Polanski's Chinatown. We know that power and money corrupts in that world, and we know its villains all too well. In Cutter's way we can perhaps recognise the difference in wealth, but at least understand that these people are simply getting on their lives, which is something that Cutter is unable to do. We don't ever really spend any time with Cord either. There is a certain ambiguity to him which is reflected in the entire film. Normally we kind of see the villains and spend some time hanging out with them to try and gauge what they are like and in Cutter's way this doesn't actually happen. The film is not about spoon feeding you its narrative and indeed spends a great deal of time away from the central murder mystery. It is much a film about Bone as it is about Cutter. Although Harold Stills shows Cutter, I don't think I've ever seen Bridges better nor have I ever seen a film which goes to such lengths to make him look so good. And rarely do you see films that so clearly portray a male as the lead object of attraction. How he and Cutter became friends is never explained, nor does it need to be. They are simply friends stuck in a rut, with seemingly no way out, and a common link in the form of Mo. Bone is initially unwilling to take part in Cutter and Valerie's investigation, and even tries to sabotage her attempt at blackmailing Cord into admitting his guilt. Even George offering him an increased role at the marina fails to ignite any passion or interest in him, and for such a vapid and self-centred character, we may at first be somewhat put off by him. However, over the course of the film, he becomes a figure of intrigue. His friendship with Cutter appears to be the main source of reasoning in his life. Keeping Alex out of trouble when Moe's sane is his main occupation. Where many would simply walk away, he stays, and though he's not actively trying to push either onto the road of sobriety, he is at least there. It is indeed a sign of nobility that we could quite easily first ignore, favouring instead the brash madness of Cutter. You can understand why he's unwilling to take part in the conspiracy, yet we also want him to get involved, as if it will add more legitimacy to the quest. Although primary about Cutter and Bone, the film is an assembled piece, and in my mind the most moving story of the film is that of Cutter's wife Mo. Like her husband, she is a borderline alcoholic who is never far away from a bottle of vodka, yet unlike her boisterous husband, Mo is quiet, thoughtful, and simply tired of the life she now leads. Vietnam has destroyed Cutter, and Mo is part of the collateral damage. Ike Horn's performance is so effortlessly moving, you could be forgiving that at first she was almost too sedate, given how melodrama often seems to manifest itself in characters sobbing and screaming. Yet Mo is far more than just a figure of pity. She is by far in advance the most level-headed of the three, and whilst Bone and Cutter bumble through life, she knows full well that their existence is utterly meaningless. She is waiting for Cutter to begin his life again, yet is resigned to the fact that this may never come. Equally, she craves a companionship of Bone, it too knows that this union is elusive as much as the former scenario. I won't ruin the film, but most character arcs surprised me more than I first thought possible. 
On initial viewing, it actually disappointed me. Yet on further reflection, it's actually become all the more thought-provoking and indeed moving and very surprising. I'm aware that I'm presenting Cutter's Way as a fairly depressing affair, which to some extent it is. However, it is at times laugh out loud funny, and these moments normally come at the expense of Cutter and Harold's performance. I would be greatly surprised if Gary Sinise did not draw from Harold when his performance as Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. Parser, I think, knows he's onto something special and allows the actors to simply do what they need to do. In Cutter's Way, we're allowed to hang out with them and to really understand the ups and downs of their relationships. Yes, Cutter is a drain on his friends, but he's also the court gesture, and often they are unable not to laugh along with his actions. A standout moment for me comes when he returns home hammered and drives into a neighbour's car. An argument ensures in which he insults the neighbour and goes indoors and is informed by Mo that he has neither insurance or a licence. As the police sirens wail, he calmly swigs some mouthwash, goes outside and plays the humble warfare, even asking the neighbour not to hurt him because he is a cripple. The police officer simply lets him off with a fine and walks away enraging the neighbour. The film doesn't really need the scene in the strictest sense of the word, but as a character moment is the kind of gold that such masterpieces toss up. Yes, he is in the wrong. Yes, he is in the wrong. But the one thing that unites humanity more than anything else is the universal hatred of a tosser, which is exactly what the neighbour is. Likewise, Bone gets to make fun of his friends on various occasions, including his frustrations at hearing Cutter recite the tale how his leg came to be damaged. Like any friendship group, there are moments between friends where our tolerance simply snaps. A friend of mine has recently split up with his girlfriend, and recently I was forced to stop him two minutes into the three-hour monologue as to how his relationship came to an end. I'm sympathetic, of course, but for the fifth time I really can't really be bothered to hear it anymore. Even at moments of apparent total seriousness, Parter allows Cutter to inject some humour into the scene. After delivering the letter to Cord's office, Valerie, Cutter and Bone retreat to the pier to await news from Cord. Bone shoots target with a BB gun and growing impatient, Carlos simply produces the 45 pistols from his trousers and blows the targets to pieces. Perhaps it was these types of tonal shift that so confused the film's backers. Hollywood by this time is moving in line with George Lucas' view that cinema should be there to entertain and thrill. Bruckheimer was beginning to find his way, and indeed when something can't easily be defined, it runs the risk of obscurity. Credit has to be given to Parser for keeping the whole thing together. When juggling so many different possible genres and tonal shifts, a lesser filmmaker would leave us with nothing more than a jumbled mess, neither giving us enough of anything to really sink our teeth into. Parser instead more than holds Cutter's way together, he actually forces you into becoming involved with its myriad of intricacies. At present I am working on pre-production on my own film, and I keep going back to the screenplay over and over again. And of course if you kind of go to any screenwriting guide or anything like, like Robert McGee's story, you could be forgiven for thinking the rules of screenwriting are set in stone. Most would tell you that to make your character's quest or goal clearly defined and not to stray too far from the central narrative strand. Cutter's Way throws these types of notions out of the window and is proof to me, if proof be needed, that it's those who go against the norms who make the most important and interesting work. Of course the central premise of the film is the murder mystery. It is at the back of our minds the entire time, but the very fact that it may even not exist at all makes it all the more interesting and allows us far greater to get under the skin of the characters we are watching. A case in point would be when Mo returns from the shop with food rather than alcohol as Cutter, Bone and Valerie plot their scheme. A conversation is struck up as to why Mo has actually bought food over booze and it reminds us how absurd the trio's behaviour is and secondly that Mo as a person simply wants to lead a normal life. Such a wish just to buy food and behave like a normal person is so tragically poignant we almost want Cutter to give up his pursuit of Cord and settle down with Mo. But like Cutter, 
past that has sparked our imagination with the promise of something far more alluring and mysterious. Such types of screenplays are often too oblique for some to enjoy. Take a film like Five Easy Pieces where we wait for Jack Nicholson's character to find the film's central narrative drive. Come its end, we realise that the film's lack of clearly defined narrative is indeed the point and is indeed metaphorical of the character. Although this is the only film I've actually seen of Parser, I would be inclined on this evidence to rate his work quite highly. The direction is never overbearing or intrusive, which is to say it does not lack style, moreover it's simply evidence of a director who knows exactly what the real styles of the film are, and that's its screenplay and actors. Parser allows scenes to play out in their own leisure, allowing us to react and take what information we need from them. It is evident to a certain extent he was allowing the actors to direct the scene, taking his cues from them rather than the other way around. In one particular scene, Cutter strikes Mo and is reprimanded by Bone. The scene carries on for just a couple of beats and as the palpable tension in the air resides. Some directors may have cut earlier, some may have tried to make more bigger deal of the scene, but Parser just lets the actors do their thing and the reality of the group's dynamic become brutally exposed. The film also looks beautiful with Jordan Cremworth of Blade Runner fame on his hand as director of photography. Indeed there is a paradoxal nature to the image in the story which is common in the neo-noir. Santa Barbara looks postcard perfect through Cremworth's lens, yet the story itself is very bleak and dark. It is why the film reminds me of the likes of Chinatown and Point Blank. In these types of films, the traditional conventions of shadows and places to hide are stripped away, leaving those within the narratives alarmingly vulnerable to detection. The film's score also stills well clear of any noir-like trappings or themes. Jack Nitschke's music is dreamy, often lacking the sleazy romanticism that composers often employ in the genre. It is in that respect completely in keeping with the film's loose genre settings. Were it available on CD, I'd snap it up as an instant, as it's quite a wonderful listen. Cutaway was released in 1981 to a critical mauling and quickly found itself in cinematic obscurity. In truth, it is not hard to understand, however unjustifiable this is, why it would befall this kind of treatment. I mentioned at the start of the episode how far we have fallen from the likes of Spielberg heaping praise on Michael Bay, and indeed is here the likes of George Lucas who radically altered the perception of cinema on the part of studio executives in the late 70s. Cutter's Way was produced by the perennial dreamers of the studio system, United Artists, who took risks and paid the price. In the post-Star Wars world, audiences unknowingly to them were on the cusp of a wave of quality that would rapidly find itself on a downward trajectory. Released alongside films such as Raiders of the Lost Ark, Cutter's Way must have seemed like to many a stat backward, a heady, depressing film that offered none of the fun and games the likes of Steven Spielberg and Lucas were throwing out. Although I love Raiders of the Lost Ark, simply watch Temple of Doom as evidence of the devolution of what filmmakers thought audiences would enjoy. Cutter's Way never had a chance in this world. It forces its audiences to confront too many painful home truths and explores the kind of territory that people simply did not want to know about at the time. I think it's a quite incredible piece of work and suffers only because of when it was actually released. I am convinced we would have regarded it in the same pantheon of 70s films such as Taxi Driver and Chinatown had it been released in the decade it so clearly belongs. Cutter is one of the most heroic American protagonists I have seen on screen, which although it may sound ludicrous to me anyway, has a fundamental truth to it. The Vietnam veteran is a deeply insular character in films, adrift throughout, and by the 80s a deranged maniac lecturing rookies about life face down in the mud. Cutter to an extent has all of this yet channels his rage into one of the most noble of causes. His motivation may be personal, and his behaviour to Mo at times deplorable, but Cutter is on a mission that no one else, not even the authorities, are willing to undertake, 
and attacking a ruling class that seemingly lives above the laws and rules of the world in which we live. He is the everyman fighting back to right a wrong in a town where the status quo exists to keep people like him in their place and out of the way of the disapproving elite. There is a modern parable of course, the banking crisis have left the world in a state of ruin. Across the globe and in both developed and third world alike, millions of people are facing hardship, yet those responsible, those who knew what was happening and had the potential to avert the disaster, simply carried on. Despite the rhetoric of President Obama and David Cameron, the world of politics has not changed. These people will never be arrested, never forced to answer for what they have done. In Manchester, a woman has been sent to prison for licking a stolen ice cream looted during the riots. The head of RBS retired on a seven-figure pension, whilst the bank he rang was almost forced into bankruptcy that could have destroyed the lives of millions. Cutter's Way serves as a timely reminder that unchecked, the rich tread on the poor, yet like Jeff Bridges, we are for the most part either aspiring to be, if not part of it, on its periphery, idly standing aside, accepting the ills and wrongs, never wanting to rock the boat. Cutter says a glorious fuck you to the whole world and refuses to accept his role as part of the quiet underclass, literally at the film's end, leading a veritable one-man cavalry charge into the heart of the system. You're lucky to get one character who is as compelling as Cutter, Moe or Bone, let alone three, and Parsons' film is so deep, so rich in character and intelligent, it makes a mockery of almost anything that the huddle masses pay their hard-earned money to go and see. The bitter truth of the matter is deep down I sincerely doubt that the many who flocked to see Transformers 3, paying their overpriced ticket for gimmicky 3D, actually enjoyed the film, which is made all the more tragic because for the sum total of £3.97 they could go to Amazon.com and buy a film that will literally make them fall in love with film all over again. And that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. If you want to email me, do so at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. And you can always visit the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. That's going to be it. And I will be in contact soon. Many thanks for listening. Bye.